Welcome back to Nat Alliance Now podcast. Today we have part three of our contractor series with Jay Williams speaking to Kathy Trishan and Alan Messer. I hope you enjoy it. Well, welcome everybody. It's good to be back with you. We are back with Alan Messer and Kathy Trishan, and we've been talking about contractor issues. And we're going to continue that discussion today. In our first episode, we talked about contracts. In our second episode, we talked about additional insurers and certificates of insurance. But today we're going to talk about liability issues. What are some of the things that, from a general liability perspective, you need to be aware of as you're dealing with your insurers? So we'll dive right into that and, and see what Kathy and Alan have to say. So just to kind of kick it off with the two of you, you know, a lot of times, uh, especially on larger contract situations, the 2017 version of the American Institutes of Architects contract, and we talked about that in, in one of our previous episodes, we use that, that's used on larger contracts, sometimes even mid-sized contracts. Talk about Alan, some of the nuances in this contract that agents need to be aware of, especially as it relates to general liability coverage. All right, Jay, let me just begin by saying that I think sometimes when agents review contracts uh, for their clients, and we talked about that in a previous session, that they ask for the insurance portion and the AIA. 2017 edition has gotten much more specific about the expectations of the insurance coverages. And it goes into detail about even addition dates of particular forms that it expects, as well as coverages that it wants to see and uh, exclusions or limitations that it does not want to see. And so an agent has to be much more attuned to the coverages they are providing uh, for their client in order to meet those contract requirements. One of the areas that we are seeing more emphasis on, even from a contracting perspective, is uh, not only general liability, but cyber liability and professional liability and pollution liability and a lot of other areas. But as you indicated, we're going to kind of confine our conversation today um, with GL. And in our um, ProFocus Contractor Seminar, Kathy's going to kind of lead the participant through that GL policy. So I'm going to ask her to speak a little bit more in detail uh, about what she's going to do uh, with the uh, participant and looking at the AIA contract as respects the CGL coverages. Thank you, Alan. There is a good deal of information in that contract and a lot of requirements in there. And oftentimes these requirements are phrased in terms of things that cannot be on the policy. As an example, action over exclusions, prior work exclusions, exclusions having to do with certain types of work like residential, exclusions for explosion, collapse, underground, things that are not problems in our unendorsed CGL policy. Problem is, very few of our insureds have that unendorsed CGL policy. And not only do we need to be aware of these 
from a contractual compliance standpoint, but also making sure that our insureds are properly protected. So part of my goal in the Pro Focus is to talk about what the CGL does, but also to illustrate ways that many carriers are trying to reduce that breadth of coverage and to help an agent know what to look for. Excellent. Excellent. So think about it from this perspective, Kathy. You know, uh, when I look at the CGL, I think the first thing that stands out to me is from an important standpoint is the insuring agreement. Because that's where it all really begins in the insuring agreement. Now, we have to refine the insuring agreement later through the use of exclusions and exceptions to exclusions. But so many times when agents refer to the CGL policy and they're thinking about the insuring agreement, they use the word coverage or covered or not covered. And and really, the operative word in my mind becomes you know, liability. Are we liable? So can you explain the difference between liability and coverage? The difference between liability and coverage here is huge. We have to remember that the CGL starts off by telling us that we're going to pay the sums the insured becomes legally obligated to pay. And that can happen in a number of different ways. Perhaps it's a negligent situation or a contractual situation. But we need to remember before we start talking about what's covered and what is not covered in the context of the rest of the insuring agreement and all of the exclusions, that we will still only pay if the insured is legally liable. Now, of course, when that complaint comes in, we don't always know if the insured is legally liable. And that's when we start to say, if what is being alleged is true, and if the claim were indeed covered by the policy in the sense that we've hit all the marks in the insuring agreement and have no exclusions, then if the insured is legally liable, we will pay an indemnity portion of a claim. But perhaps the insured turns out not to be legally liable, at which case we're looking at a defense-only type situation. So I do think we need to keep that in mind, and that's an important distinction. Alan, your thoughts? Yeah, one thing I would add to that, Jay, is that When we look at the CGL policy, remember that we have three different insuring agreements that two of them are based upon legal liability, but the third insuring agreement is not based upon legal liability, and that's the medical payment section. And I think sometimes people overlook that when they think about medical payments, that it does apply to operations as well as to premises, because I hear many agents refer to it as premises medical. And there's nothing in the insuring agreement uh, that narrows it to that particular extent. I think the other thing that happens uh, with the insuring agreements is it does say that our obligation to pay is based upon legal liability, but the insurance company has the right to investigate and settle as they see fit without the insured's consent. And so what does happen sometimes under general liability is that the insurance company may make an economic decision that's not based on legal liability, but the coverage may still be there. Now, I I get emails, I get phone calls from agents, and they tell me all the time, the insurance company Uh, denied coverage. 
And I say, okay, send me a copy of the insurance company's denial. And when I read the denial, it doesn't say that there's no coverage at all. It says we're not paying because we don't think we have any legal liability. We don't think the insured has any legal liability. So well, there is a connection. I think even in the ProFocus presentation, Kathy has a PowerPoint uh, slide that shows legal liability and coverage are connected, but legal liability and coverage are definitely distinct concepts. And we could be legally liable with no coverage. We could be legally liable with coverage. And it works better for the insured if there is legal liability and the insurance coverage response. But I also think that in many times when people begin analyzing the CGL, they begin with the exclusions rather than the insuring agreement. I think we have to look at the promises and the give twos. But I will tell you, I, I, our agency was primarily a contracting agency, and we told our insureds that what we really like to see in the insuring agreement is the duty to defend because the duty to defend is broader than the duty to pay. And it is much more likely that in the career, in the history of the contracting organizations, there are going to be allegations made against them, whether or not they are truly legally liable. So, you know, when you look at the policy, I mean, the first thing we see in the policy is we start to see words that are in quotation marks. And of course, that means that that these are defined terms, and there are a lot of defined terms in the CGL. Always, you know, the, and, and we have a section, section five of the policy, that is the definition section. I always call it the policy dictionary, right? So, explain the importance of understanding these terms that are defined within the policy and the significance of that. The definitions in our policy are so important because if we do not have a defined term, it opens the door for even more confusion and more ambiguity as to what it is that the policy meant to say, meant to do. So when we look at some definitions, I think about the property damage definition, for example. And when we understand that definition, we look and see that not only are we dealing with physical injury to tangible property, but we also see that there's a loss of use component there. The definition makes it clear. The definition also helps to make it clear that we are not going to cover any kind of damage to electronic data. So when we understand that, we are in a situation now where we see an issue, in that case, that we can solve. If we didn't have that definition, we would struggle. Same with mobile equipment. I look at that definition. And in many states, as an example, you might have a rule, a law, that says if you've got something that operates under its own power and it's on a motor highway, it's on a public highway, that that is subject to financial responsibility. And it's only by completely understanding the definition of mobile equipment that we understand that's actually an auto. So it's a little bit contrary to what we commonly think. And it's only by having very detailed and precise definitions that we know those things. And Jay, one thing I would say, and, and thanks for the segue, by the way, Jay, because that gets me into my, one of my favorite sayings that Kathy and you are very familiar with. Words are important. 
and every word of the policy is important. Some have special meaning, and those are the ones we see in quotation marks uh, that are defined in the coverage form. But the other words have meanings as well. And as Kathy indicated, those may be subject to uh, more court interpretation uh, where they might go to the dictionary or whatever. What I've also noticed in my time in the insurance business is that words within the GL policy are defined differently and different edition dates. When Kathy was reciting the definition of property damage, she is talking about the more current edition dates of the CGL coverage form. And those definitions do change as court cases perhaps interpret what we have there differently. Nowhere could that be probably more true than in looking at the definition of something called occurrence. You know, an accident including continuous repeated exposure to the same general harmful conditions. Uh, what does that mean? Well, we may have that, that could even transcend jurisdictions as to how they might look at that particular phrase and definition. You know, we have to have an occurrence under our insuring agreement for bodily injury or property damage to, in order to trigger coverage. And, and Kathy's going to take the participants through that definition, particularly as it relates to a very important concept that I'm sure she's going to talk about, and that's construction defect. Kathy? That is such an important topic and one where the definition of occurrence becomes key. So often when I see people discussing the construction defect issue and coverage, and I'll use that word again for construction defects, I, I see a lot of folks automatically jumping to the exclusions, to taking a look now at the damage to work exclusion and the exception to that, the subcontractor exception, completely bypassing the part where we've got to get past the insuring agreement. We've got to have an occurrence of property damage. And in many jurisdictions, that's simply not the case. And then going back to your earlier comment, we also have to have liability there. The insured has to be legally obligated to pay. So that definition of occurrence is loaded, especially in the construction defect setting. You know, I like the fact that we were talking about occurrence because that kind of is a perfect segue into my next question, which is a lot of times I think that agents get lost on that term occurrence and um and and which policy when you're writing occurrence forms come into play when there's a loss can you talk about that a little bit i mean i think that this is the perfect opportunity to talk about when does an occurrence policy actually respond I can start off with that with one common misconception that a lot of our insureds have, and sadly, I think a lot of insurance agents have as well, and that's how completed operations coverage works. I think a lot of our contractors are under the mistaken impression that if they have coverage in effect when work is done, that if something happens in the future because of that work, bodily injury, property damage, that as long as they had coverage in effect when the work was done, They've got coverage for that, not realizing that we've got to have bodily injury and property damage 
that occurs during the policy period. Sometimes that's easy to figure out. If I fall down and hurt my leg, that's very easy to tell what was my date of loss. When did my BI occur? Property damage, especially in a construction defect setting, well, that can be a little bit trickier. But we still need to have that BI or PD during the policy period. And I think that falls right into something that gets perhaps not as much attention as it should, is that many of our contractor clients in reality are sole proprietors. You know, it's easy to be a sole proprietor. It's easy to start out as a sole proprietor. It's easy to complete construction as a sole proprietor. But I want to quit. I want to retire. I want to enjoy the rest of my life. And the, uh, as Kathy mentioned, the bodily injury property damage has to occur during the policy period, which puts our contractor in a really uh, tenuous position if they decide to cancel their insurance when they shut down their business because their exposures do not end it. And, and, and Kathy's going to talk to folks about how to fix that or how to at least address that. I don't know about fixing it, but at least addressing it as best we can. And then that brings into things, things like statutes of repose and something that we might even talk about in the, the contract portion of this program. And what is a statute of repose? And does it, how does it affect contractors and how long they should carry coverage? And all, all of these are interrelated, if you will, Jay. But it's very important to, to look at the policy provision. I remember teaching a class and, and uh, I said that the BI or PD has to occur during the policy period and a, and a participant uh, raised his hand and he says, uh, if what you are telling us is correct, <laughs> which is kind of like a, a little bit of a challenge about, I really didn't think it was that way, um, then a lot of us are in trouble because we haven't been communicating that to our clients. Uh, he went on to say, and I think that I think that is true. I think that people get confused with the occurrence concept and the claims made concept because even when we bring up this this occurrence and the BIRPD must occur during the policy period, then I all of a sudden I start getting participants saying we need tail coverage, and I'm like, no, hold on. I'm sure that's happened to you, Kathy, hasn't it? More times than I can count, Alan. You know, not only that, I mean, as we're talking about this, even if I start, you, you mentioned sole proprietor, I start out as a sole proprietor, and now all of a sudden I decide to incorporate or I decide to create a partnership with someone else or an LLC, uh, I've got problems down the road too. And once that occurs, because so many times agents want to just change the policy from my name as the sole proprietor to the LLC and then leave my name off. And, and does that create problems as well? That creates a lot of problems. When we look at the language in our policy, we recognize, first of all, if you use a partnership or an LLC as an example, no one is covered with respect to conduct of any unnamed entity. And when we take these names off the policy, now the named insured on the day that that BI or PD occurs, is not the same named insured that performed the operations. So we are losing completed operations coverage for that additional entity 
And it's simply a matter of the insured and sometimes the agent misunderstanding that coverage trigger and exactly how the occurrence works and what that means. So, so we have this insuring agreement that's fairly broad. And then we begin to shape it, as we said, by using exclusions and exceptions to exclusions. And that really makes the coverage take on form, if you will. There are some exclusions and some exceptions to some of those exclusions that are really important when it comes to contracting risks. Alan, what do you think some of those are? Oh, I got to tell you, my favorite exclusion, you know, the, the, the general liability policy is my favorite policy, that 16-page policy, but my favorite exclusion is exclusion J, damage to property. And when it comes to contracting risks, I don't think there's one exclusion that is more misunderstood than exclusion J and its impact, because we have several paragraphs under exclusion J that hit several different areas. and. We used to have things, we used to have an endorsement that we added to a policy that we called a, a broad form property damage endorsement. But exclusion J is going to talk about personal property, and it's also going to talk about real property. And so there have been some even court cases because exclusion J begins with, we don't pay for property damage to premises you own, rent, or occupy. If you think about a construction risk, one of the questions that immediately arises is while the contractor is at the project, are they deemed to be occupying those premises? And believe it or not, we've actually had court cases that had to go in and say, no, 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 we're not going to count the contractor just because they're working there as occupying the premises. But there were some insurance companies that obviously thought that that was true or there wouldn't have had the appellate court decisions to determine were they occupying those premises. But Kathy's going to talk about two of my favorites is J4 and J5. And Kathy, why don't you take it from there? I agree, Alan. This is definitely the most significant endorsement when it comes to our contractors. And we talk about things like not paying for property damage to that particular part of real property where operations are being performed. And then, of course, we get into different court interpretations about where that particular part stops and starts. And even that particular part of property that has to be replaced or redone because work was incorrectly performed, all getting at that faulty work scenario from an ongoing operations perspective. So it's an interesting conversation to have and it's also interesting for me to see some of the givebacks that some of our carriers have offered now to our contracting insureds to help at least a little bit to overcome some of the problems here in this damage to property exclusion. So that's something that I always like to talk about as well. And we want to make sure that our we want to make sure that we're all on the same page because it's care, custody, or control, not care custody, and control. And Kathy and I have both heard many people say and rather than or. We only need one. We don't have to have all three. Now, what constitutes 
care, custody, or control. That could be jurisdictional, admittedly. And what one jurisdiction says is care, custody, or control. Another jurisdiction might have a slight difference of opinion about that particular area. But we also cover the bailment situations that often happen on job sites because it says we exclude property damage to property that's loaned to the named insured. Do we have equipment interchange on construction projects? We do. We do. You know, talking about the, the dreaded exclusion J, right? And J2 can be somewhat problematic for construction risks, especially if they are a residential builder and they're building, for example, you know, uh, homes in a tract home community, right, where they're building houses. And so they're going to be selling them, but they're not sold yet. And then they have a model home that they have in there. Can you talk a little bit about J2? J2 is one of those that for a home builder can be devastating. Uh, because when we're talking about J2, we're talking about uh, property damage uh, that they don't have uh, or, or they have an exception. Because after we go through exclusion J, at the bottom of exclusion J, there are several exceptions. And it says J2 does not apply uh, if the premises are your work and were never occupied, rented, or held for rental by you. Well, if they've gone in and they've built that building, that dwelling, and then they've converted it into their office and they're using it as an office and perhaps even a warehouse for samples and so forth, it's going to be hard to argue that they didn't occupy. And so I've, I've seen agents that rush to look at whether or not there's completed operations coverage, and there's never going to be any discussion under a later exclusion that relates specifically to completed operations if we can't get by J2. Now, there were some carriers at one time that had ways to endorse that and would say, if they're not occupied by you for more than 365 days or more than 720 days, I remember one of the carriers, I guess I can use their name, Maryland Casualty, because they're really not around doing that anymore, that has a specific home builders program that addressed that particular issue. There are ways that contractors can address that issue, not easily today, but they could do it through formation of their companies. So they have a sales organization that might actually occupy a sales entity that might do the actual occupying, whereas the construction uh, entity never occupies. And so you have to look at ways from a risk management perspective, because insurance just isn't always going to be the answer. While we may have some of these problems and discover some of these problems in the coverage form, you're going to find that many carriers are not just going to be willing to say, oh, well, yeah, that sounds okay. Let's let's let them occupy it for 730 days. Uh, I, has that been your experience as well, uh, Kathy? Absolutely. And I agree with your comment. It used to be easier to get some give back in this area, and it's becoming more and more difficult. So the risk management piece is key. And I think too often our insureds 
look to insurance as the only solution, not thinking about other ways to avoid some of these issues. So when it comes to insuring um, contracting risks, uh, limits are extremely important and can be tricky from time to time. So Kathy, can you give us some tips regarding limits and the things that agencies should think about when it comes to uh, setting things like agency standards or you know, and how we approach the limits of insurance for construction risks? This is so important to make sure that we've got adequate limits, not just on an occurrence basis, but on an aggregate basis as well. And I would say as an agency standard, I cannot imagine ever writing a GL policy with less than an each occurrence limit of a million dollars with an aggregate of at least double that, ideally triple that. And then, of course, an umbrella or excess sitting on top of that. But when it comes to our contractors, I think it's so important that we have a per project general aggregate, that that aggregate applies separately to each of the projects. And what I see some carriers doing that is of concern is they will add some language to a per-project aggregate endorsement stating that coverage will apply or the general aggregate will apply separately to each project if required by contract. Well, that's problematic. My insurer doesn't need that coverage feature simply to comply with the contract. He needs that coverage feature to properly protect himself. So I worry about that. And I was beyond excited when I saw that in 2019, ISO now has an endorsement that allows that products and completed operations aggregate to also apply separately per project. Whether our carriers will be willing to provide that or not remains to be seen. I know some are still not yet adopting the 2019 forms, but it's nice to have those tools in the toolkit. Kathy, are you also, though, aren't you seeing some carriers, and even though they put the per project aggregate on there, that they might put an overall policy cap as well? That is a great point, Alan. Yes. And I am seeing more and more of that as well. It's not uncommon to have that policy aggregate of 5 million or 10 million. And thank you for mentioning that because that severely reduces the benefit of having that aggregate apply separately to each project. You know, these days, at least from what I've seen, companies are beginning to add more and more exclusions to policies that are issued to construction risks that are unique, uh, especially as it relates to the construction or the contracting exposure can you highlight some of those that, that you see in, in the work that you do, both of you, but Alan? Well, you know, I'm more, I'm more on the consulting side now than the uh, everyday in the trenches side. But I've got to tell you, I see some non-standard endorsements on policies that I just shake my head at and say, wow. That must have caused somebody a big loss. And so now all the policies they are writing have got new and inventive language on them. And you sometimes, uh, when you're looking at those, you say, I, I, I don't know exactly what they're trying to do with these, uh, but I think the intent is. And we see those 
Uh, and there are some standard ones, by the way. You know, Kathy mentioned earlier that under the GL, we don't have to worry about X, C, and U. Uh, and some people that might be listening to us don't even know what X, C, and U mean. Uh, explosion, collapse, and underground, where we used to have to buy back that coverage. It's now included. But we have companies that are now putting X, C, and U exclusions on forms that didn't do that. But one of the ones that I really, really hate to see on any GL policy is a classification-specific endorsement, where we're only going to cover those operations that are specifically described in the schedule. And unfortunately, many agents, as well as insurance, don't understand what that particular classification entails. Because when we would use something like carpentry NOC as a class code, what does that mean to the agent and insured versus the commercial lines manual description of carpentry NOC? Kathy, is it that one of your uh, hot buttons? That is one of my hot buttons. And the I, I'm with you, Alan. Those endorsements are deadly. And even if you look in the commercial lines manual, the description of Carpentry NOC is not very good. You've got to go out to a premium audit advisory service to get a very good definition of that, a good explanation. Not to mention, my insured does not have a copy of the commercial lines manual. So it's hard to imagine how he's supposed to know what he's covered for. Those are dangerous. One of my least favorites. What else, Kathy, have you seen that kind of a hot button with you? All varieties of action over exclusions, exclusions for injuries to subcontracted workers, subcontractor employees. I'm especially concerned about ISO's new earth movement exclusion and the fact that now there is this industry standard form to allow that to happen. Those are some of the ones that I see as most problematic. That and the subcontractor warranties, the ones that say you have no coverage if you don't do certain things as respects your sub. Yeah, and that and Kathy brings a, a great point there. Uh, but but even when you have the, the height restrictions that are on the GL policy, could there not be different interpretations, Kathy, of, of what is two stories versus three stories? Absolutely. I talk about this in class sometimes. When I look at a building to see how many stories it is, I count windows. Is that what the insurance company's doing? Are they doing something else? What does your insured think this means? It's very difficult. Going back to Jay's question earlier about the definitions and Alan's comment constantly and so importantly that words matter, if, we, if we're not all speaking the same language, it's going to be very difficult to figure out. Where does our coverage stop and start? And, and and when do you count the windows in the basement when the basement is <laughs> underground, you know, or underground exactly. So it's kind of crazy. I, you know, I, I mean, I'm thinking, and I'm also thinking about like silica exclusions now and exclusions related to uh, no coverage. If there's, if they're doing townhouse or condominium related work or, you know, exclusions that are similar to that that are that that we never used to see in the past but now we're beginning to see that more and more and, and it's just so many things that agents need to 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 think about when they're looking at the quote and they're looking at the policy when it's issued you really have to read the policy now because 
you can leave out a sentence in a particular form where it is a minor, it might look like a minor change. It might still look like an ISO form because it says at the bottom, including copyrighted material ISO. But as Kathy was mentioning, uh, if I take the employer's liability exclusion and I just leave out the exception to the employer's liability exclusion for liability assumed under contract, I have completely changed the coverage by just eliminating a particular sentence in, in the uh, coverage form. And whether I do that by endorsement or whether I just do that by writing the policy and embedding it in the form. So when we talk about these exclusions and, and the way that we might modify an ISO form, we have to also be careful about these being embedded in a what might appear to be an ISO form, but has these slight changes in it. I often used to tell contractors, uh, because contractors can sometimes be price sensitive. I used to tell my contractors, okay, we're going to change it up from now on. You're going to tell me how much you want to pay for insurance. And that's how much you pay for insurance. And then that's how much coverage I give you. Because I'm going to rewrite the policy form depending upon how much you want to pay. Because I have not yet found a contractor at claim time that wanted to argue about price. They were much more concerned about coverage. Now, I'm the coverage guy. If you can't argue with me about price as long as I'm making sure you are properly covered. And I think that's something we all fall into. Contractors bid on projects and they think people ought to bid on their insurance. Not, not my idea of what agents should do. Agents should not be quoting a contractor's insurance. They should be writing appropriate coverage for the contractor's exposures. So as we begin to wrap this up, what are some recommendations that you have, both of you, to agencies regarding proper control of their E&O exposure when it comes to insuring contractors from a liability perspective? Well, I'll start off with this one. I am still firmly in the trenches here dealing with these things. And I think it is so important to completely understand your contractor's operation understand what it is that they're doing, and understand what kinds of coverage they are expected to have to satisfy their contractual requirements. Because when I go out to market, if I don't have a good idea about some of the coverage features that my insured is required to carry, I'm going to have a very difficult time choosing the best markets to go to and negotiating those terms of coverage if I don't have a really solid feel for what they need. I could bind coverage today and then tomorrow see a contract requirement that I didn't ask about before, and it's going to be a problem for my insured, and that's going to be a problem for me. So the more I know up front about what they do and what they need, the better off I am. And I might add, I believe that agents need to have a formal method for exposure identification. This isn't just go in with a yellow pad of paper and start asking questions. I need to know that I have followed my roadmap 
for identifying those exposures for my contractor client. And I believe agencies, if they're going to specialize in this niche, and I do think it is a, a niche where there is some specialization needed because of the potential exposures, not only for the contractor, but for the agent handling the contractor account, that they need to develop like their own survey so that they can talk about a lot of these areas that we are talking about today. And as Kathy mentioned, they you have to have an overall understanding. And I think you have to also be able to discuss those with your contractor client, because in some situations, from a liability perspective, quite honestly, the coverages may not match the contract requirements. They may not match all of the contractor's exposures. That's the time to get the sign-off from the contractor that he or she understands the limitations that their policy provides. And then they may be, quote unquote, assuming those risks uh, on their own, which is another risk management technique uh, that they may decide to just retain those risks. And, and I'm sure that you've had some of those conversations uh, with eight, with uh, your insurance from time to time, Kathy. I have those conversations on a regular basis, and I love that you mentioned that formal process of identifying these exposures. I think what happens too often in an agency setting is most agents are very aware of E&O exposures. And when they think about a survey, they think about it simply as a checklist and checking things off and having the insured sign. And for me, it's really got to be about so much more than that. Most importantly, educating the client. Our contractors don't always understand their exposures, the limitations of their coverage. And as we're going through these formal survey processes, if we're just checking boxes and say, sign here, we're doing ourselves a disservice, and I think we're doing our clients a disservice as well. Well, Kathy and Alan, I just want to thank you so much for the, the time that you've spent with our listeners and with me today. And I really appreciate that very much. And I want to invite our listeners, first of all, if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, please take a, look, a listen to those. And of course, we'll have another episode coming up uh, in, in the next week as well. But I also want to encourage uh, you all to, if you're listening, to keep in mind that Kathy and Alan are doing our Contractor Pro Focus Series class on December 16th and 17th. And, of course, you can register for that uh, on the website at scic.com. And we would love you to be there because I know that you're going to get so much more out of it than what we've been able to give you here. This is just a snippet of some of the things that you're going to get during that 16-hour program. So thanks again to both of you, and thank you to our audience for listening in. And we'll see you on the next episode. That's it for this one. We only have one more installment in this series, so be sure to look out for that. And if you missed our previous episodes, check us out at scic.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Nat Alliance Now podcast.